Well, we're continuing our study in our uh, in, in Galatians, and so we're, we find ourselves verses 10 through 14, and we, it is, uh, you know, high theology, it is a lot of Bible, a lot of detail, a lot of just nuances, rest of chapter 3 and chapter 4, we're going to come go on the sunny side of the mountain in chapter 5, so hang on if you will. Uh, it's going to get really exciting and fun and just, you know, uh, application-oriented in chapter 5. Until then, we are laying the foundation. <laughs> like, that wasn't intended. That was just, we are laying the foundation for chapters 5 and 6, and very important. If we set a good foundation, it'll really just help us uh, understanding Paul's, uh, Paul's uh, line of reasoning. If we set it poorly, then it can be difficult for us. So hang in there. Verses 10 through 14 for the reading of God's word. Let's all stand together. Galatians chapter 3. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Please be seated. So I'm going to begin our morning by telling you that most likely all of you here are guilty of this lie. You have committed this lie. Some of you this past week, I would say most of you this past month, I would say this past year, this year, within the past four months, you have committed this lie. And as a pastor, uh, you know, I, I, I want to obey God, I want to follow His will, but I have lied this lie as well. And what is this lie? It is the lie of, I have read and agreed to the terms of use, right? Anytime you update a program on your mobile phone, you update your uh, Bible software, or you sign a contract for your mobile phone, they have this thing you sign off on. You click that tab, I've agreed to the terms, and uh, I've read and agreed to the terms of use. Now, I have to confess, I don't read those terms. <laughs> I don't, I've not read them, and I just agree because I figure, right, they're not going to, you know, put anything there that's going to be, uh, you know, too harmful to me. They're not being too deceptive. Even though lawyers tell us all the time, the devil is in the details. You have to read the fine print. And there are people out there who are counting on you not to read the fine print to scam you and I of our money. I read of this uh, recently. I'm sure you guys probably heard of this scam. There's a, and actually, they, they found one online. They, they posted it. A person was selling a brand new iPad with 64 gigabytes for $200 on eBay. Right? So you click. It's not an auction. It's buy it now. You click on it. It's yours. You pay them $200, and you get a brand new iPad, 64 gig iPad. But in the description of that auction, it reads as follows. You are bidding on a picture of an iPad that is brand new in the box, right? So you win that auction, you pay $200, and you get a picture of a brand new iPad, and you are fuming, and the person said, will say, hey, that's, I wrote that on the description. You're bidding on a picture. You got to read the fine print, right? Well, in a way, that's what Paul is saying here in verse 10. To those of you who love the law, who are so enthusiastic about the law that you want to add that to the gospel and impose it for other Christians and the law of the Old Testament, have you guys read the fine print? Not the blessings for obedience, but the penalty for disobedience. Do you guys know that if you break the commands of God, if you violate, if you fail to fulfill even a single command of God, the penalty is you are cursed by God. You are cursed. You're under judgment. You're under God's wrath. 
The penalty is you're accursed by God, separated from God forever. And so for the Gentiles, they might not have known this. The, the, the Galatian believers, most likely they weren't real big on the Old Testament, especially Deuteronomy, right? So maybe they weren't aware of the, the penalty for disobedience, but all Jews, they knew this. For them, it wasn't fine print whatsoever. Two weeks ago, I don't know if you guys were here on Sunday, afterwards we were walking down to the parking lot, our kids noticed sky riding. They had never seen it before. They were going crazy, running around the parking lot with cars driving every which way with their you know, eyes in the air. These planes were doing sky riding, and there, you know, you could like propose, right? That's very romantic. You guys think about doing that, right? Propose to your fiance or your girlfriend, or you want to advertise your eBay website with that picture of an iPad, or whatever. You want to advertise, you put it on the sky for people to see. For Jews, it wasn't fine print. This curse, this penalty, for Jews, it was skywriting. Why do we say that? It's because the manner in which Moses commanded the people of Israel to declare these curses. All right, God put this curse and these curses not in the middle of the book of Levit- Leviticus, like between chapters 19 and 20, right, in fine print, because no one really reads Leviticus, right? It'll kind of sneak in and God will get them later. No, in Deuteronomy 27, God told Moses, this is how I want you to enter the promised land. After their exodus, 40 years wandering in the wilderness, they were to enter into the promised land of Canaan (coughs) from the eastern border of Israel, the strip of land. And about 20, 30 miles north of Jerusalem, there are two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And right in the middle is a valley in between these two mountains. God told Moses to tell the Israelites that six tribes had to go on Mount Ebal, the northern mountain. Six tribes had to go on the southern mountain, Mount Gerizim. And the Levites are to walk the valley in between these two mountains. And as the Levites are walking through that mountain, there is to be an antiphonal chorus of these curses, blessings and curses. So Mount Ebal, they proclaim the blessings of God for obedience. And on Mount Gerizim, they declared the curses of God for disobedience. And it begins by the Levites walking through the middle, and they begin with the curses for disobedience, and all the people say amen. Deuteronomy 27, the entire nation, two million people, right, separated, gather on two mountains, they stand together, and the Levites declare, Cursed is the man who makes a carved image, casts an image. It was an abomination of the Lord. Um, all the people answer out, Amen. Cursed is anyone who dishonors father or mother. All the people say, Amen. Cursed is anyone who perverts justice due to the sojourners. All the people say, Amen. And it ends with verse 26. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people say amen. That's the opening curse. And then there's the blessing and then curses again. Deuteronomy 27, 20. It's a curse sandwich, right? They begin with a curse, then obedience, and then end with curse. So second and third is the, is the tribes of Israel declaring it back and forth to each other. The blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience. So all the Jews, they knew this passage and some rabbis said that this was practiced on an yearly basis, that faithful Jews would go to these mountains and uh, declare uh, and read out uh, Deuteronomy 27 and 28. So Jews, for them, it wasn't fine, fine print. For the, for the Gentiles, maybe for us it's fine print, but not for the faithful Jews who knew the Bible, especially for the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul was a Pharisee. He knew the Old Testament. Most likely he had memorized the first five five books of the Old Testament. And he knew this passage and this verse very well. And Bible students say there's another reason why Paul knew this passage and this verse. Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 46, Paul recounts in his testimony how he has suffered for Jesus. And one way he suffered was five times he received 40 lashes minus one. Right? 40 lashes minus one. It was on uh, the authority of the nation of Israel. They would persecute anyone for blasphemy. Right? They didn't have the authority for execution at that time because they were under Roman rule. But they could punish people. And so five times they arrested Paul and punished him for preaching the gospel 
a specific number of times prescribed in the Old Testament. 40 lashes minus 1. Deuteronomy 28, 15 through 20 uh, talks about this. And as he was being lashed, the synagogue manual says, as the, the person is being lashed 40 times minus 1, they are to read Deuteronomy 27. The curses of God for disobedience. And the last verse they would read is verse 26. Cursed is anyone who does not fulfill or do fulfill, obey the commands of God in the Old Testament. So Paul knew this verse. He knew it through his study. And he knew it, the lashes on his back. And so he's telling the Galatians, my dear beloved idiots of Galatia, you fools, you dummies, how, how, how dumb are you? You want to go back to the law? Right? Did, did the Judaizers mention to you the penalty for disobedience? Right? A single infraction, a single violation, single transgression of the law, James 2.10 says, if you, break, if you keep the whole law and yet you break one command, you are guilty of being a lawbreaker. You are just as guilty as if you broke all of the commands of God. For God, it's absolute. Right? There's no degrees. There's no like scale, right? It's not a gradient. It's yes or no. You're holy or unholy. And if you have broken one command, you're guilty of breaking all of it. And the penalty is you're cursed by God. You foolish Galatians, you want to go back to the law when Christ has paid your penalty by faith alone and you're righteous? So he, he tells them this, this woeful penalty for anyone who seeks to be under the law of God. This quote of Deuteronomy 27, 26, 27, uh, 26 pronounces God's solemn judgment against sinful humanity. Because God is a thrice holy God. He's absolutely perfect and righteous. He cannot, he will not tolerate sin. He will not endure with unholiness whatsoever. He requires nothing less than total obedience to the entire law of God. God requires a consistent obedience and a constant obedience to His revealed will. And the news is worse. The awful news, the horrific revelation of Scripture is that all of us are sinners. Right? There is no one righteous. We have all sinned. This is a doctrine of total depravity, definite depravity. Right? And from our perspective, some people are more moral than others. Some people are more righteous, more faithful, more trustworthy, more loyal. Right? There's a degree in terms of our perspective, but in from God's perspective, it is absolutely clear. That we have all, we're all sinners. First Kings 8:46. There is no one who does not sin. There is no one. All right. Isaiah 53:6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned to his own way. Romans 3:10. None is righteous. No, not one. Romans 3:23. All have sinned and fall short. Of the glory of God. All of us have sinned. And uh, this sin is not outside of us. This sin is not uh, quarantined or, or limited to a certain part of us. We are sinners to the core. Our very essence, our hearts are filled with sin. Um, in Matthew chapter 5, 29 through 30, <coughs> Christ elevates the standard of God's holiness by saying this. He said, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your right eye causes you to sin, get a knife and gouge it out. Because it's better for you to enter into heaven with one, without an eye than to enter hell with both eyes. If your right hand causes you to sin, Jesus said, cut it off. It is better for you to go to heaven as a maimed person than to go to hell to burn eternity as a whole person. 
he elevates this, God's standard of righteousness and our sinfulness and how radical we must approach sin in our lives. That's Matthew 5. Later on in Matthew 15, Jesus says, but the source of your sin is not your eye or your hand. Oh, we wish. It'd be, it's great, it'd be great news if sin was one eye. Then we could all go to get surgery and remove that eye. We'd be righteous and accepted by God. Oh, if our sin was limited to a, a one extremity of our bodies, we'll cut that off, we'll be whole. But Jesus said, no, it's not your eye, it's not your hand. He said, what comes out of your mouth proceeds from the heart, and that defiles you. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. We are sinners because... We sin because we are sinners. And our sinfulness is not external. Our sinfulness is not limited to one area of our bodies. No sinfulness is found in who we are, the inner man, the person of the heart. Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, Therefore, the line between good and evil passes not through states, not between classes, not between political parties either, but through every human heart. And through all human hearts. So it's not, oh, those people are sinful. And if our country just didn't have those people, we'd be a righteous nation. This world is messed up because of that class or that political party or that age group. No. Every human heart is stained by sin. Definitely wicked and depraved. The reason this world is dark, depraved, evil, and fallen is because our hearts, your hearts, is the source of all these things. This is universal. All men, not just Jews who have the law, but even Gentiles who never opened the Bible They've never opened the Old Testament their whole lives. They sense this shame, this guilt, this curse because of their sinfulness. How does this happen? Because God has placed in the human conscience the law of God. Human conscience can be seared, right? Our conscience can be hardened, right? It can be callous. So it is it is not perfect. It's not perfect like the Bible, like the, like the law. But God has placed this in all human hearts, everywhere in the whole world, where everybody senses what is right and wrong, and everybody senses their guilt. Even people who have rejected ancient categories, rejected the categories of scripture about sin and punishment and curse, they think of it as superstitious. It is a remnant of of ancient uh, 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 religious superstitious thinking. Even the ardent atheists understand. They, they experience this. They, they, they sense this guilt, shame, and curse because of their sins. One of the books I'm reading is Tim Keller's book, King's Cross. I would recommend it to you. And he, he, said, this, he said this there. Though we've abandoned the ancient categories, we still have a profound, inescapable sense that if we're examined, if we were to be examined, we would be rejected. We have a deep sense that we've got to hide our true self or at least control what people know about us. Secretly, we feel that we aren't acceptable, that we have to prove to ourselves and to other people that we're worthy, lovable, and valuable. Why do we work so hard always saying, if I can just get to this level, then I can relax. And we never do relax once we get there. We just work and work What is driving us? Why is it that some of us can never allow ourselves to disappoint anybody? We have no boundaries, no matter what people ask of us, how much they exploit us, trample on us, because to disappoint somebody is a form of death. Why does that possibility bother us so much? Where are all the self-doubts coming from? Why are we so afraid of commitment? There is no escaping the fact that we all have a sense that we're unclean. Unclean. So law through scripture, law through our consciences, exposes our sins, convicts us, and condemns us with this curse that anyone who is under the law, 
who seek to be who seeks to be approved by God, received by God, loved by God, accepted by God through obedience to the law is under the curse because of their sins. Therefore, instead of receiving a benediction, we all deserve to receive the malediction. I, you know, at weddings or special events, even after some services, uh, the pastor will give a benediction to the congregation. Quoting from Numbers 6, 24 to 26, pastor might bless the people there and say, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Well, R.C. Sproul said, we don't deserve that at all. We don't deserve a benediction from God. What we deserve is a malediction from God for our disobedience. May the Lord curse you. May the Lord abandon you. May the Lord keep you in darkness forever and give you only his judgment without mercy. May the Lord turn his back upon you and remove his peace from you forever. That is the curse that we deserve because we have broken the law of God. If that is our trust, if that is our hope, God demands perfect obedience to his law. A single infraction, you're guilty of breaking all of it. And and if you're guilty, and we are, then you're under God's curse. Now, from here, I want to move on to verse 13. But I would not be doing justice to a a main objection that is raised here. And um, it might not be very helpful to you, but... It is a question that we need to consider uh, in light of Scripture. Many, uh, and I use this term loosely, students of the Bible have raised an objection at this point where they have said, Paul is um, um, misunderstanding Judaism here, right? Paul doesn't understand Old Testament economy, Mosaic law, because that's not how it worked. In the Old Testament, God never expected perfect obedience. How do we know that? Because God had provided a way for sinners to have their sins forgiven through the system of sacrifices. Right? So in the Mosaic law, there was the law and sacrifices. God called you to obey these commands. And if you are if you fail that obedience, God provided the priests. And the animals that you could sacrifice. If you're poor, you could sacrifice pigeons. If you're even too poor, you could sacrifice grain to atone for your sins. So God never demanded perfect sacrifice. And that is what the Judaizers are calling the Galatians to go back to. To the law and to the sacrificial system. Paul either misunderstood them or he's misrepresenting them. Well... The answer to that question is that, yes, it's true. God had provided the sacrificial system for people who had sinned to have their sins forgiven. But, and we'll read this passage a little later, Hebrews 10, 1 through 4. The blood of animals never had power for remission of sins. The animals being sacrificed didn't have any power to forgive even one sin. What what caused the sinners, their sins to be forgiven was faith in God. It was always by faith. So there is a Jewish believer who has sinned against God. They go to the temple they bring a lamb to be sacrificed, and they're trembling. Right? Their knees are buckling. Their heart is just beating out of their chest. And they understand that this lamb is a substitute for their sins. But this worshiper understands 
that this lamb doesn't remove his sin from them. It is God who does it on his behalf. And he trusts in God and the Messiah that is to come that will be his ultimate substitute. His sins are forgiven. God reckons his faith. God considers his faith and it credits to him righteousness because of his faith. Right next to him is another Jewish person. And with that person, he's there because social pressure. He's there because of his wife. He's there because I feel guilty. He should do this. It makes him feel good. So he brought the animal, priest killing it, and he's like looking at his uh, sundial and he can't wait for this to, 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 to hurry up and finish. He has no faith in God. Right? His heart is full of hypocrisy and sin. And he goes away. His sin remains. Even though they perform the same exact sacrifice, the unbelieving Jew, the sin remained. In fact, his sacrifice was an abomination to God. Here we see uh, some verses in the Old Testament, Proverbs 15.8, the sacrifice of the wicked. I mean, what do you mean? Everybody's wicked. Everybody's a sinner. The wicked are the ones whose sins remain because they don't trust in God. For them, it's outward religion. It's external obedience. Their heart is not trusting or believing in God. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Hosea 6.6, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. Knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Hosea 8.13.14, as for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice and meet it, but the Lord does not accept them. Just because you sacrifice doesn't mean God accepts it. Because God doesn't accept your sacrifices, he will remember their iniquity. He will punish them for their sins because they had forgotten their maker. Jeremiah 6.20, your burnt offerings are not acceptable. Your sacrifices are not pleasing to me. Why? The context is spiritual adultery. These, these uh, 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 people from the nation of Judah, they were, they were whoring themselves out to idols. They're blatantly, publicly committing sin, and yet they're coming to God to sacrifice. What presumption? What pretense? And God says, I know your heart. There's no faith. I reject your sacrifices. Amos 5, 21, I hate. I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings, grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, the melody of your harps. I will not listen. These um, Jews, they were ethnically Jews, they're religious Jews, but they did not believe their sins remain. They that believed in God through the sacrifice, because the righteous shall live by faith. Habakkuk 2.4 Their sins have been forgiven. Right. They were all looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. And then in John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist saw Jesus. And what did he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here is God's Lamb. He's not our Lamb. It's not our sacrifice for our sins. What can we bring to atone for our many sins? Here, Jesus is the Lamb of God. And what he does is he takes away our sins once and forever. And soon as Jesus died on the cross, the veil, the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place was torn in two. Saying God accepts this perfect sacrifice. He is sinless. He is righteous. He has atoned for your sins. And he invites us to approach him with boldness and confidence through Jesus and not through animals. And 40 days later, what happened? The Holy Spirit came upon believers. And throughout the book of Acts, we see not just the Jewish believers, but Samaritans who became believers and Gentiles who became believers. 
where God is saying he dwells no longer in the temple, but he dwells in believers' hearts by faith alone. The sacrificial system was a shadow pointing to Jesus. So Paul is saying, if you go back to the shadow, if you go back to the law, trying to obey the law, and when you fail, try to offer sacrifices to atone for your sins, this is not a neutral thing. This is not like a wise thing, you know? I don't plan on getting an accident, but I'm going to buy insurance just in case. Right? I don't plan on dying. My wife might need you know, help. So if I die, I'm going to buy life insurance that she's set for life. Right? Doing both is not being wise. When, you, when Galatians sought to do both, they were cutting themselves from grace. They were severing themselves from Jesus. In Hebrews 10, there's that whole passage. I turn to Hebrews 10. Now you guys are... Uh, more uh, alert, more uh, energetic than first service, so we can do this. Hebrews 10, <clears throat> verses 1 through 4. I'm going to jump to uh, verse uh, 26. Hebrews 10, verse 1. Since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The sacrifices had no power to save, no power to sanctify, no power to renew or transform. He can't do anything for us. Otherwise, they would, have, they would not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. For verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That is why we don't go back and what, what happens? What are you doing? If you go back, go to verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. What is that sinning deliberately? Is rejecting Christ. Rejecting grace. Right? Cementing our unbelief. If we refuse to follow the cross, follow Jesus. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. These sacrifices pointed towards Jesus. If you reject Jesus, I want to go back to the sacrifices. Those sacrifices are not efficacious. They are not effectual any longer. Only thing that is remaining, verse 27, is a fearful expectation of judgment. And a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy in the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant by which he, has, he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace? NIB says, uh, how much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished? who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who are stepping on Jesus, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace. You're, Paul is telling the Galatians, and I'm telling you, you go back to Moses, and you rely on yourself to obey the law, and count on the sacrifice of these animals to atone for your sin, you're not being wise or being neutral. What you're actually doing is you're stepping on the dead body of Jesus on the cross. You're spurning him. You are calling the, his blood, his death, an unholy thing. That he began the work, but he can't finish it. And you are insulting the spirit of grace. You are rejecting the Holy Spirit. Because... Only thing remains for those who are under the law. It is a curse. And so the law and sacrifices point to Jesus. So Paul is calling them away from the law to place their full faith in Christ alone. Verse 13 of, he of Galatians chapter 3. If you would go back to Gal Galatians 3. That is the predicament that we're under. All of us have sinned against God. 
All of us are slaves to sin. We deserve the malediction from God every day. Where he rains down, pronounces curses upon us. Every Sunday we gather together. What we deserve is for me to stand here and curse you and for you to curse me. To damn each other for our sinfulness. That is the reality of being under the law. But in verse 13, here is the counter curse of God. Here's the counter curse of God. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. What did he do? He redeemed us from the curse. This is the first time in Galatians Paul used the word redeemed. It means literally to buy off, to set free by the payment of a price. The root word for redemption in Greek is agora, marketplace. The picture is we are slaves in the marketplace and God comes and he makes payment. He purchases us. He ransoms us. He redeems us and he sets us free. How did he do this? With what did he ransom us, purchase us? By having his son be cursed. Christ was cursed by hanging on a tree. Now, a little bit of a historical study here. Um, The Jewish nation at the time of Christ didn't have power to execute anyone because they were under Roman authority. Therefore, they wanted the Roman government to execute Jesus. Sometimes they got out of hand and they murdered people like Stephen, uh, but that was not under their jurisdiction. The Talmud recognizes four modes of capital punishment. That's why crucifixion was a Roman way of execution, not, uh, not the way of the Jews. On the Jewish law, there are four modes of execution, stoning, burning, beheading, and strangling. Right? So you're committed of a crime that was where you were to be executed. They would burn you, behead you, strangle you or uh, stone you, according to Deuteronomy 21. But, but regardless of how you were killed, they would hang you on a tree right afterwards, according to Deuteronomy 21. And this was saying, God wants to publicly display that this person is cursed by God. And how do you do this? You depict this person by hanging him on a tree. And so... If you're in Jerusalem, they were, you, were, you, were, you were executed. You saw someone executed. They were hanging. This person is cursed by God because this is Old Testament law. And God had mandated, don't let this person hang overnight. Before sundown, bury this person. You don't want to defile the land that God has given to you. That's why the Pharisees, they had just murdered Jesus, an innocent man, but they were all huffing and puffing about a detail of the Old Testament law Sun's going down. We don't want his body. The Old Testament law says uh, that person must not be hanging. We need to bury him right away. So hurry up with this crucifixion. Right? They had the other thieves, their, their legs broken, they pierced the side of Jesus. Well, Jews knew this very well. So for them, the, the, the message that their Messiah was, was murdered was a stumbling block, was offensive was unacceptable to them. But it was doubly shameful because not only was he murdered, right? He wasn't just, they didn't just drown him. They didn't just stab him or behead him. They hung him on a cross. So for them, this was a stumbling block to them. They could not accept the gospel. They could not accept God's message because for them, the one who hangs in the tree is cursed by God. It was offensive to them. Well, the apostles, they didn't um, cater. They didn't make the gospel more palatable. They didn't make it more seeker sensitive or friendly to people, more acceptable. If anything, they emphasized this curse. Right. In um, Acts 5.30, Peter, preaching to the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, he said, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Jesus didn't hang on a tree. It's a metaphorical account of the cross. But he's 
He's saying this to highlight that Jesus was cursed by God. 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Acts 13.29, Paul speaking in the synagogue, Jesus was taken down from the tree. The apostles almost went out of their way to call the cross a tree. They didn't make the cross less offensive, less heinous, less of a stumbling block. They highlighted that all the more he was hanging on a tree. To put it, as Philip Reichen said, to put it in the most shocking and yet most accurate way, the apostolic message was about a God-damned Messiah, a Messiah who was damned by God. And so there is accounts of, uh, of Jews in, in the early church where they say, this is why I cannot be a Christian. I cannot accept that the Messiah will be cursed by God. Now, why would the apostles highlight this so much? Because this is the only way for our curse to be removed. Right? We are cursed under God's, under God's curse for we are sinners. And for our curse to be removed, Jesus has to be cursed on our behalf. If he is not cursed, then our curse remains. He must be cursed by God. And that way, he is our penal substitute. This is substitutionary atonement. This is God's beauty and wisdom and sovereignty in the death of Christ on the cross. If he was just stoned, if he was just stabbed, if he was just uh, drowned, we would still be in our sins and we would still be under God's curse. But because Jesus died in a specific way, he was cursed by God. We have been rescued, we've been redeemed, we have been ransomed. Who cursed God? God cursed him. Isaiah 53 verse 10, it says, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. NIV, I think it's a better translation. It pleased the Lord to crush him. It pleased the Father. It was his plan. It was his design. It was according to his sovereign will. It pleased God. Why? Because Christ was cursed for us. In verse 13, I mean, there are important words in the Bible, but those two words are so important. They're so beautiful. They're so precious. It's hupon, huper, human. It's not God, the Greek word God, for us. It's on our behalf. He was cursed on our behalf, on behalf of us. He was our substitute. See, Jesus himself was the only one in all of human history who kept the commands of God. He was sinless. He was righteous. He was perfect. John 8, 46, Jesus asked asked his enemies, which one of you can convict me of sin? Hebrews 7, 26, we have a high priest who is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. 1 Peter 2, 22, he committed no sin. Neither was the seed found in his mouth, but he was cursed, not because of his sins. He was sinless. He was cursed because of our sins on our behalf. And so on the cross, he experienced the curse of God, where he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God forsook him. God abandoned him. Christ experienced hell on Calvary. He experienced that malediction of separation from the Father because of our sins and my sins. So we receive the benediction and He experienced the malediction and He became a curse for us. God forsook Him. He was utterly alone. Why? Verse 14, so that, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. What is this blessing? Remember last week? It is not a child. It is not land. It is not a family. It's not a great nation. The blessing is having one's sins forgiven and having your faith counted as righteousness. That blessing that Abraham received is ours where we are called God's friend. Not through the law, never, but through faith. And so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The spirit guaranteeing our inheritance. 
this deposit, seal of God's approval that we are not just followers of God, we are his children. He has adopted us. We are members of his family and we will be with him forever. Well, um, three, three thoughts, closing thoughts, three possibly maybe disconnected thoughts, but hopefully it'll help you to kind of wrap our study and close it out. First is, um, we talked a few weeks ago about the difference between experience and scripture. How experience is not self-authenticating. Experience is not a valid test for truth. Experience, no matter how real it seems to you, how strongly or how recurrently you have experienced this, is not a, a test for truth. Doesn't doesn't validate truth in any way. So any experience that is inconsistent with the Bible, we toss it. Only experience that is consistent with the Bible, we hold on to it. But we hold on to it loosely. We hold on to the Scripture tightly. But experience, even if it's consistent, is secondary in authority to the Bible. So with that said, what is it to experience God's blessing? What is it? And what is it to experience God's curse? Like if if you were under God's curse, would you would you feel it? Would you experience? Would you would you know it without the Bible? Right? You say, I'm blessed by God. I know because I'm so happy. People like me. I have a good family. I make good money, right? When we sing, I feel the warm and fuzzies, right? Is that how you know if you're blessed? And how do you know if you're accursed? Well, let me just share this with you. And this is in no way any kind of a racist rant. I'm just pointing out this uh, ethnic group that I love, but because they're in the scriptures and they are wholesale, they've adopted a workspace mentality in their approach to God, right? The Jewish nation, Jewish people. I mean, Jesus was a Jew. Paul, all the apostles were Jewish. Apostle Paul was uh, Jews. There are Jewish believers that, that are near and dear. We love them. But by and large, the nation of Israel rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And after the destruction of the temple in AD 70, there are no more, there are no more animals being killed. Peter should be happy. There are no more animals being slaughtered. And I, I, I went to the temple years ago. They're not doing that anymore. There's no more sacrifices. So all we have right now is rabbinical Judaism. It's a law-based Judaism. There are no more sacrifices. And so the the Jewish people, this ethnic group, this religious group, um, that reject Jesus, what is their experience in their lives? Well, there are perhaps 13 to 15 million Jews in the world today, in a world of 6 billion people. So if a room is full of a thousand people, about two of them would be Jewish. What is their contribution to society? What are their achievements in the world? I mean, I have pages of this. In the sciences, they've won 22% of all the Nobel Prizes ever awarded. Right? Of all the Nobel Prizes outside of science, including all of them, they've won over 30% of all the Nobel, Nobel Prizes. Given their small population, they should have earned only one of the 102 Nobel Prizes awarded for physics, chemistry, medicine, and science, psychology, or physiology. They've won 123. They are also disproportionately counted in, in, in the arts. Of all the movie directors who earned Oscars, 38% were Jews. In philosophy, they've, they've made significant contributions, names like Spinoza, Maimonides, Marx, should be familiar to you. Economics, Marx, Friedman, Samuelson. In physics, Einstein and Bohr. In psychiatry and psychology, Freud, Adler, Erickson, Fromm, and Maslow were all Jews. There are eight Ivy League schools, and three of them are led and headed by presidents who are Jewish. Jewish students make up 20% of all Ivy League uh, students. Faculty of Harvard, Stanford, Yale Law Schools, 30% are Jewish. In politics, they make up 11% of the Senate, 6% of the House of Representatives. As economists, they are singularly gifted. In terms of entrepreneurship in in the market, they're they're gifted as well. You drink Starbucks, 
You eat Dove, Dove uh, ice cream bars, Hagen Dodge, Ben and Jerry, and Baskin Robbins, and then to lose weight, you sign up for Weight Watchers, Jenny Craig, Nutrisystem. All started by, by Jews. All right. In, in every field, they excel. So are they blessed? Their experience is tremendous blessing. How is this possible? Because the workspace system works in the world. If you approach your education as if your justification is dependent on it, you will study like never, you've never studied before. If you approach your work, your employers want this from you. To approach your work as if your life depend, eternity depended upon it, you will excel in your work. For them, they embrace works righteousness. And in the world, they succeed. They prosper and they are blessed in this world. But it is not a sign of God's blessing. Right. Horizontally, right, the gospel is not going to pay your bills. God's the gospel is not going to do your taxes. God's not going to raise your kids. We have to do the work. But if you bring that under the radar and have that relationship with God in that way, it's not a blessing. It's a curse. Right. So I bring that to you. How do you know if you're under God's blessing or God's curse? Right? How do you know? If your life right now, right, all the blessings in your life is motivated by your flesh, motivated by fear, by anxiety, by anger, by ego, by competition. Right? If that's what's fueling your life, and it's working because it's producing all these blessings. Right? Your income has grown. Right? You have better relationships. All these are coming together. That's not a sign of God's blessing. Right? No. Yeah. Whether it's believers or not, if you're a believer, are you experiencing practically, functionally, the curse of being under the law? If all of this is a fruit of your faith and you count it grace and mercy alone, you're trusting in Christ, you're working hard because you want to bring glory to God, then it is a blessing and only then. Likewise for good things. Likewise for righteous things. How do you know if a church is being blessed? Oh, it's because they're growing in number. People are giving to that church. People are godly. They're going to missions. They're not drinking caffeine or they're not drinking alcohol. They're not smoking. They're not watching TV or bad movies. That's a blessed church. Well, we're describing the Mormon church, aren't we not? Are we describing the Jehovah's Witnesses? Are they blessed by God or are they under God's curse? Because they're seeking to be approved by God through works of the law. Likewise. Likewise for you, how do you know? Your godliness, your Bible reading, your pursuit of holiness, your ministry, is that sacrifice that you're making to God to earn God's favor? It might feel like blessing, but if it's motivated by your flesh, then it's separating you from Jesus. It's your damnable righteousness. Right? Are you avoiding sin to avoid Jesus? Right? Are you avoiding sin? So you don't have to go to the Lord and confess your sins and receive his forgiveness by grace. All the good things in this world, if it's not produced by faith, it's not a neutral thing. It separates us from Christ call you. I humbly plead with you. Don't trust your experience. Don't think, I must be under God's blessing because things are going so well. It might be a sign of God's blessing. It might not be, but you can't know. What you do know is the gospel. What you do know is the scriptures. Place your faith in Christ so that your life would indeed be a sign of God's blessing rather than you're being deceived by your experience. 
you're being led astray from Christ through prosperity, through abundance, by good things, you're walking away from the cross. I'll just close with this. Um, I think one final test to know whether you're um, rightly understanding the cross, whether you're really um, experiencing the blessings of the gospel or you're being deceived by it, is uh, what the gospel produces in your life, what the understanding of God's love does in your life. Turn your attention to Apostle Paul. In Romans 8, he talked about his oida, his intellectual knowledge of the gospel, but his gnosko, his intimate experience, experiential understanding of the gospel, where he said, I am sure that neither death nor life, angels, rulers, height nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8 is all about no condemnation, how God has given us Christ and all things with Him. And He knows the love of Christ. Now, what did that love of Christ produce in His life? Romans 9, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. In chapter 10, verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. So for Paul, the love of Christ compelled him to consider everything worth nothing if he may Preach Christ and have Jews be saved. Have non-believers receive the blessing of Abraham along with him. And he, he said, if it were possible for my brethren to be saved, and it would mean I would I'd be accursed by God and cut off from Jesus, I would do it. That is the fruit of true understanding of Christ's love. That is the fruit of true faith in Christ. You understand that the relationship with God has been set. That God gave us His Lamb as a sacrifice to pay for all of our sins. So we don't have to sacrifice to God any longer, for God any longer. We don't have to do anything to make ourselves right with God. He has made it right in Christ through faith. Therefore, our hearts are so melted by this love. Our hearts break for the lost, for those who are yet outside of Jesus, who are under the curse of God, who are separated from Christ, our health, our hearts break and melt for them. So we give ourselves for the lost because God has made it right for us in Christ. God doesn't need your sacrifices, but your neighbors do. Unbelievers across the street do, across the cubicle. Unbelievers across the border, across the oceans. They need our sacrifice. So a believer understanding God's grace, once and for for all sacrifice, turns to live sacrificially for others, to hold out the word of life that people might be saved. That is the experience that is consistent with the gospel of Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this undeserving grace to hear the blessing of the gospel pronounced to us. To hear that you in love, sent your Son, reconciling us to you, yourself, though we were enemies, forgiving us of all our sins, where you see us, and you see us, you see Jesus, you see your perfect, righteous Son, your beloved child, because of a faith that you have given to us as a gift. We uh, 
thank you for this blessing that you've given to us. And Lord, we pray that it would uh, drop down from our head to our hearts. And our hearts would have that sorrow, that unceasing anguish that Paul had for unbelieving Jews. And we would have that for unbelieving people that we know. And that we would break for them. And we would seek to be all things to all men, so that by all possible means that you might save some. God, we pray that, that the message of the curse being lifted would cause us not just to receive this blessing, but to declare this blessing to all people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.